Welcome to the Pilot Podcast, where we watch the pilot episodes of TV shows to answer your question, should I watch this? My name is BJ. And my name is Me Too. And this week, we're checking out Love is Blind on Netflix, Tommy on CBS, Dracula on Netflix, Duncanville on Fox, and Listing Impossible on CNBC. So stay tuned to the end as we explore the different kinds of love. One kind of love is the love you develop without ever seeing the other person. That's what happens on the reality show Love is Blind on Netflix, hosted by Nick and Vanessa Lachey, who don't really do much. They disappear into the background of this show. Beach, do you want to explain the premise to our listeners? So Love is Blind is the social experiment turned reality show where there's men and women who are all interested in dating and marriage. And in order to move beyond the world of dating apps, where it's all about appearance, image, profiles, they will have blind dates where they're each in a room and cannot see each other. So they really just have to go on conversation to find a potential spouse because the premise is eight days of chatting with each other, four weeks of actually living with the person you're engaged to, and then you have a wedding where you'll decide if you'll say I do. It's almost intentionally setting up catfish where you fall in love with someone across the screen, but you have no idea what their appearance is, what their race or ethnicity is, which they stress on the show, which I thought was odd, or anything else about their looks. Exactly. When all of your dating is essentially a phone interview, you can make yourself whoever you want to be. I didn't even think about that. It really is like a phone interview. (laughs) Yet people are falling in love. There are 12 singles, pretty heteronormative, six men and six women, and the men and women are attracted to each other. How did you feel about the couples that they decided to surface? I think they did a good job of choosing the most interesting couples for this first episode. Mm -hmm. Like you mentioned, there were other people who I am curious about because you just see them in the background. But I think, for instance, Cameron and Lauren, they are the most interesting couple and stood out to me. Their connection was the most believable, but also the wildest because they're presented as the first couple to fall in love and get engaged. They said, I love you within four days and they cried together, but not together because you can't see each other. They cried in isolated rooms across from each other with a wall separating them. Isn't that what you do with your partner in separate rooms? Just cry and hold your hand up to a wall. (laughs) Yes. Sometimes I ask him to stay in the living room and I'll go in the bedroom and we just cry about how much we love our families which is what they cried over. Did any other contestants stand out to you? I would say the love triangle that I feel is developing almost a love quadrangle because Barnett and Amber are attracted to each other, but Barnett is also attracted to the very confounding Jessica, who is also attracted to Mark, who shares her love for the Cubs. That is all it takes. But I think you brought up something interesting. So what do you think of all of these people being, and I don't want to be rude, but desperate to get married? (laughs) When they are all conventionally attractive people who, in my opinion, shouldn't need a reality series to find love. My first bullet point when I wrote notes while watching this show was, this is a group of people who are conventionally attractive and ready to settle. 
And that's all it is. Jessica especially complains that she is having trouble finding people, but she is a thin, blonde, white woman. And I don't want to invalidate her journey, but you just can't tell me that she isn't being asked out all the time and that her standards are too high when her standards that she identified on the show were tall, athletic, and within five years of her age. Are you telling me that there aren't fellow Cubs fans who are 29 to 39 years old, tall and attractive? It's a small pool. Teeny tiny. And they are all married. Yes, it would have to be a microscopic pool. The only other contestant that really made me crack up was when Lauren tried to convince John that she was a white woman because she was insulted when he said, I can tell you're African American. (laughs) Because then she made her voice sound like Mrs. Doubtfire. She was like, what? I'm white. Oh, that was good. I did like that they added that moment because there were times when I was a little uncomfortable with how much race and appearance kept coming up in the conversation and not in a negative way, but it was on everyone's mind. I think that they were talking about taking into account someone's appearance as a wholly negative thing when you are trying to date people, but you do need to find the person that you're dating attractive to you, at least. You don't want to look at someone forever if you don't like their face. Yes. So I didn't understand the total condemnation of that. And then also the discussion of race was odd. Ultimately, you do need to understand each other's cultural backgrounds. And that has a lot to do with your race. To act like removing that is an entirely good thing is a little wild. So me too. Are you interested enough to watch these couples go on this journey to their marriage in another four weeks? Yes, it looks very messy. Y'all, messy hive, we're here. Love is Blind is here for us. The circle just ended. We need something new. And that is Love is Blind. I know it's getting mixed reviews, but this is juicy fun. And I see a lot of tension building up. And I sense some explosions in the future. I am surprised to say I'm in the same boat. Yes! one of us. (laughs) (laughs) I don't like dating shows, but this is such an absurd concept to me. And the people that they've highlighted so far stand out. So I want to know what's going to happen to Lauren and Cameron. Is this true love? Is this actually going to last? So I would watch again seriously. All right, Beach. Speaking of love and all of its complicated forms, let's talk about Tommy. On CBS. Start us off. Tommy, played by the icon Edie Falco, is under pressure because she is the first female chief of the LAPD. And she understands that if she does her job poorly, looks bad, there won't be another chance for a woman for at least another decade. She is taking over the LAPD in a difficult time. The former chief, played by Corbin Burnson, was caught up in a sting involving sex workers and underage trafficked girls. And she is joined by the mayor who is not really loving having to oversee all of this and the deputy mayor Doug who wants to get her out and replace her with the old chief from the sex trafficking ring in this first episode like with deputy on Fox this is another case of the LAPD versus ICE they are trying to detain Maria and Tommy senses there's something more to their specific targeting of this person and her daughter. 
This was an interesting setup, if not familiar. You mentioned Deputy. I also got some vibes of 911 Lone Star, where we have someone from New York now moving to a new place and trying to add some reforms, put in her own perspective and opinions. We really find out that Tommy is focused on justice, focused on helping people, and she doesn't seem to care if she has to break a few rules or burn a few bridges. And she's really all about getting things done. which is good and bad and creates for excellent TV conflict. Especially since a ton of that conflict is centered around heavy topics like sexual assault, sexual harassment, rape. They really go there in this first episode. Within the first 45 seconds, talk about that child sex trafficking ring. What did you think about the writer's tone as they portrayed it in relation to Tommy's career, in relation to the former LAPD chief, and also involved in the case of the week? I couldn't tell if they were being intentionally flippant in their discussion of the sexual harassment that Tommy experienced on the job, that her female co-workers experienced on the job that they connect over, the sexual assault that a lot of the characters on the show experience, the child rape that's brought up at the beginning of the episode. It's true that people do awful things and get away with it, especially if they're powerful. We've seen that time and time again where people are accused of awful things and it takes so long to gain any sort of accountability for your actions. So I couldn't tell if they were trying to send a message by being flippant about it or if they were just being flippant about sexual harassment and assault. True. It's hard to tell if they're trying to be very blunt. This is how it really is sometimes. Mm Mm-hmm or if they're not acknowledging the weight to this subject matter. She says that someone attempted to rape her and then she reported it as harassment because her colleagues convinced her to lessen the accusation and then her career was still sidelined for 10 years. And now everyone around her wants her to become a feminist icon and exploit her own sexuality to boost her reputation. I can't tell if that degree of disrespect is intentional showing how ridiculous the world is a lot of the time or if it is just CBS being ridiculous. Let's hope the writers know what they're doing and will continue to give these realistic portrayals and throw in a nice message as well for the audience. Do you have predictions for future episodes? Does this stand out as a procedural for you? I don't think it particularly stands out in the world of cop procedurals, but I do think that there could be some cool plot lines coming up where Tommy is going head to head with more colleagues of Mayor Gray. Mayor Gray has already hinted that he's very well connected and he could help Tommy achieve goals together. But Tommy seems to be very willing to do things her own way, which she perceives as the right way, and is okay with pushing back against Mayor Gray. I'm also curious about her relationship with her daughter, Kate. We got a taste of it in this episode that she wasn't really there for her daughter. She focused on her career, but now her daughter needs her. And I wonder how that will develop. You got to add that family life for some balance. Always. All right, Beej, what would you rate Tommy on CBS? 
I would rate Tommy would watch again while doing laundry. It's a procedural that has some potential due to interesting storylines and politics and relationship dynamics, but the case of the week didn't stand out that much to me. So I'll see if the next episode interests me. What do you think? I think if you're flipping channels and you want to check out a procedural, Tommy isn't worse than other procedurals, but it isn't much better. So check it out if you want to just watch a crime be solved in 45 minutes by Edie Falco, who again is an icon. Speaking of evil men, let's take things over to Netflix with Dracula. Can you tell our listeners what happened in that first episode and why you wanted me to watch another horror show? Don't blame me. Fine. We're headed to Hungary in 1897, and we're going to meet Count Dracula. This is on Netflix, but also a BBC One production, hence why these are one and a half hour episodes. Yes, they certainly were. (laughs) We're introduced first to Jonathan Harker. He is a lawyer who's actually helping Count Dracula buy some property in England. As we go through this episode, it's really cool, me too, because we're seeing a new look at Dracula's history and legend of vampires, this cursed contagion that he can spread, and how he actually stands out amongst the vampires, who to me personally looked a lot like zombies, but I guess there's some overlap. Yes, undead are undead. Same category. And so we're also introduced to Sister Agatha, and she plays an important role in investigating Dracula, figuring out who he is, probably trying to take him down. And I thought this was where our time. Dracula is a classic horror villain, and he's only a horror villain because he drinks blood. What, he's otherwise a nice guy, just a little misunderstood? I didn't say he was nice, but he's very misunderstood. Okay, so how did you feel about the storytelling device of the lawyer who escaped Dracula's lair telling everything that he saw and experienced to Sister Agatha? I actually liked it. It led into the story of Dracula at a good pace. They didn't drop us in And I felt like we were learning about the whole lore and story at the same pace that Jonathan was relearning what happened to him since he had some memory issues. And it was fun because Agatha was hinting that she knew more the whole time. She was waiting for her to either catch Jonathan in a lie or to drop some tidbits. So I think the pacing was really good and the flashbacks helped us build that story well. What'd you think of it? Flashbacks can sometimes be confusing. I know that we were very confused by them when we watched Briar Patch, for example. But in this instance, it was a really helpful storytelling tool because they paced them really well. It was very clear when we were in the present versus in the past. They were in completely different settings and it brought us along with Agatha. We got to learn in real time what was happening. Speaking of Agatha, what did you think of our co-lead? It's her and Dracula. She's played by Dolly Wells and I actually liked her best in this episode. I thought she showed up and showed out. I'm excited to see her and Dracula go up against each other. I liked her quirkiness. There was some contrast between her dressed as a nun and her behavior due to her interest in the paranormal. And it was also very odd seeing her question religion when she supposedly devoted her life to God. How did you feel about her explaining and exploring the myths behind vampires? That was one of the coolest elements because they're hinting at some bigger mystery. And even though they kept teasing it, I felt like they earned that and it makes me want to see the next episode. So they bring up things like a vampire
fire needs to be invited into someone's home or why a cross is able to repel a vampire. And they suggest that it's not for the reasons that you might immediately think. And there is some bigger explanation, which I want to know. How'd you feel? They teased that really well. I don't think it's a surprise to our listeners that I don't like scary things, but I certainly was curious after the fifth or sixth time that she teased that there is some overarching reason behind everything that is kryptonite to vampires. That actually reminded me of something. Since you don't always like horror, one thing you should know if you watch this show, there are some gory scenes with blood, eyeballs, fingernails. So be prepared. Yes. Please. Okay, Beach. what would you rate Netflix's Dracula? I would watch again seriously. This feels like a mini movie series, like a lot of BBC productions. And it's only three episodes. Like I said, they are an hour and a half each. But I'm going to finish the story. My fellow babies, I think you know where we stand here. (laughs) I don't know if that's a name that I think I'm just going to stick with now for our listeners who also don't like scary things. But I don't think this show is for us. There are other fun sci-fi and fantasy shows. Email us at askthepilotpodcast at gmail.com. And I'll send you a list of shows that I think are fun and interesting, but won't haunt your dreams. So that's my rating. Me too. Do you ever struggle with finding sponsors for your podcast? Yes. Well, there's no need for you to be struggling to find sponsorships when there's services like Podcorn. Tell me more, Beach. Podcorn is a great service. They're connecting podcasters with sponsors directly on their platform. You can work together to create ads and sponsored content for your listeners and audience that's actually interesting and engaging, and podcasters can be compensated for their hard work. The checks do clear, y'all. So where can our listeners go to find out more about Podcorn? Go to podcorn.com. It's that easy. All right, Beach, back to the show. Speaking of dreams that haunt and excite you, let's talk about (laughs) Fox's animated sitcom, Duncanville, co-created by Amy Poehler, who also voices the lead character, Duncan, and his mom, Annie. The series centers around the 15-year-old dreamer whose dreams and ambitions largely live in his head. Duncan's doting dad, Jack, is voiced by Modern Family's Ty Burrell, and his 12-year-old sister, Kimberly, is voiced by Ricky Lindholm. And his six-year-old sister, Jing, is voiced by Joy Osmansky. In this first episode, we navigate him learning how to drive, his adorable and cringy crush on Mia, played by Rashida Jones, and he and his friends, Wolf, played by Zach Cherry, Yang Zi, played by Yasser Lester, and Bex, played by Bessie Sidaro, sneaking out to go to an EDM festival drenched in glitter and poor decisions. What a wild night. I had nothing like that going on in high school. No, you and I always talk about this, but the pop culture depictions of high school do not match my high school experience at all. Maybe we went to the wrong schools or the right schools. I was just about to say, (laughs) or exactly where we needed to be. How did you feel about the voices on this show? I thought it was a bold choice for Amy Poehler to voice Duncan. I didn't actually notice it was her, but I could tell it was a woman voicing Duncan. I did recognize her as Annie, and I think she did a good job. In a lot of animated series for like children shows, instead of adult animated series, you do find women voicing all genders. I remember as a child, I was shocked to find out Tommy on 
Rugrats was voiced by a woman. I think Ash Ketchum in Pokemon is also voiced by a woman. So it's very common. Speaking of women who are iconic voices in animated features, I just want to take a second to highlight the icon Cree Summer. She voiced Susie Carmichael on Rugrats. She voiced Number 5 and Lincoln Delightful and Children from Down the Lane on Operation Zero. She's voiced everyone. It was also fun to hear Rashida Jones. She has a very recognizable voice. I was wondering the choice there because Rashida Jones was super recognizable, but I believe her as an elusive person that you have a crush on and you can't quite get a hold of. I believe Ty Burrell as a dorky doting dad because that's who he is on Modern Family. I thought Amy Poehler was a little odd as Duncan. She fit better as Annie, not just because they're probably similar in age, but it made Duncan more strange. He's described as an average teen, but I don't think he's average in any way. I agree. I didn't know any Duncans growing up. Me neither. One of the things about this show that was also odd is there were so many plot points. He's learning how to drive and he's scared, but we don't know why. He wants to go to this EDM festival. He is obsessed with this girl, Mia. He deals with his friends at school. He has this weird relationship with his sisters. You pointed this out. There's like 75 pop culture references crammed in 22 minutes. Why were they going for so much? Did that work for you? It didn't exactly hit home. The broader plot points of the crush on Mia and going to the EDM festival worked. But then there were those weird moments like the strange relationship with his dad being emotionally dependent, the weird things with his sisters, the fact that they casually hang out in an abandoned RV in the woods. So it was too many things. And maybe they were just trying trying to appeal to the broadest audience possible. And they succeeded in hitting some things that I thought were funny and interesting, but they missed a lot as well. It's like they didn't trust any of their storylines to be funny. So they were like, here's a storyline. Here's another storyline. You want a couple jokes about the mass Singer? Let's do that too. Whatever we can toss at you to make you laugh. Yeah, some stuff that didn't make me laugh. I have a different sense of humor than you and probably the majority of our listeners. But there are a lot of jokes where I literally wrote while watching this. This show is all about TMI. Too much information about what's going on with everyone's bodies feelings, everything. You are a bit of a robot. Thank you. Robots will take over the world. So (laughs) I'm in a good position. Fine. But I do agree that it was a little TMI and reliant on yet another sort of humor instead of trusting us to get to know the characters and find humor in their adventures like you do with a Simpsons or with a Family Guy or my favorite Bob's Burgers. All right, Beach, what would you rate Duncanville on Fox? I would rate Duncanville would not watch again. Listeners, you know, I'm very skeptical of new comedies. It's really got to have that it factor to pull me in. And this series didn't have it. I agree. I'm not very compelled to watch future episodes of Duncanville. I don't think it was so bad that I would encourage you to avoid it completely. Check it out. But there are much better animated shows out there. May I suggest a Steven Universe or a Bob's Burgers? Email us at askthepilotpodcast at gmail.com and I will get you a list of animated shows that BJ and I love. It's a long list. It is. Speaking of lists, let's go to Listing Impossible on CNBC. That segue was smooth. So do you want to tell us about this real estate reality show? Aaron Kerman leads the show. He's a wealthy real estate agent. 
and his team tells the cold hard truth to wealthy homeowners about their unique and unsellable homes. They work to renovate them and make them appealing to wider audiences in order to move them off the market. And we meet some of his agents. He has 60 of them who have sold $5 billion of property so far. Three of his agents that are highlighted in this first episode are Lewis, who needs to be my fair lady, Tay, who is the child of David Hasselhoff, and Nisha, who is someone who came in as an intern with Lewis, and she is a superstar now. In this first episode, the main home that they're trying to sell is Renata's. She is a divorcee whose entire assets are tied up in this home. That is the thing that she's getting out of the divorce settlement but it needs some changes in order to sell and be competitive in her neighborhood. So me too. Do you remember the question I asked you? Why CNBC? Yes. I don't know. I don't know much about CNBC. What is appealing on that channel? Why you would choose to put this show on that channel? This is a show about very attractive people doing somewhat low stakes tasks that are treated like very high stakes tasks, aka a Real Housewives, a Vanderpump Rules, a Keeping Up With Our Kardashians. Why isn't this a Sunday night reality show on Bravo or E! or even NBC instead of CNBC? Those are all good questions. This definitely feels like a reality show from Bravo. Don't they have a few real estate based reality shows as well? Yes. So this would slot right in. They have a bunch of Real Housewives, so why not expand the real estate selection? And there needs to be a cinematic universe. So we pull in the Aquaman from Real Houses of Beverly Hills. And now Aquaman is trying to buy a home from Batman. You're really struggling. (laughs) Not only was this (laughs) metaphor bad. I mean, I do love the idea of a Real Housewives cinematic universe. But also, I couldn't remember who was DC and who was Marvel. (laughs) I know. I saw. And we've received some hate mail over this before. So I just didn't want to be like, Iron Man sells a house to Aquaman because I believe they're not in this same thing. Aquaman and Iron Man are separate. Exactly. But Aquaman and Batman are in the same thing, right? Yes. Boom. Roasted. You bring up a good point. On a network like Bravo or even a network like NBC, where you have a lot of popular shows and reality shows, there's more potential for crossover. So you could bring in big name celebrities as the guest of the week, and then that would be the person you're going to sell their new home to. But maybe CNBC is trying to build a name for themselves. So they're creating content like this that they know is popular on other networks. That could be it. How did you feel about Aaron, our lead, and his associates? They all fit the reality show mold. Wealthy, beautiful people working somewhat hard and succeeding really well. And I think the fun part with all these shows is they are over the top. They are not afraid to be mean to their clients, which in the real world would make the clients walk away. Lewis curses two or three times in the home, potentially more. I couldn't tell if some of the bleeps were an editor's choice or if you were actually cursing that much. But could you imagine having a client that you're trying to convince to allow you to sell their $20, $30 million home and you're just dropping F-bombs left and right? I would not accept it. I wouldn't either. But I also don't have $30 million homes to sell. So I don't know. But I do like that they are so blunt and forward. And they are actually giving good advice from what I can tell. They just 
actors could improve their delivery if it wasn't for TV. They paint Renata, the divorcee, as almost destitute. Yeah, this desperate woman, she no longer has a husband. She has no income. All she has is this house that she and her ex spent too much on when they built it. And if she wants anything out of this divorce, she's got to take whatever Aaron and Nisha can get. And then there's Lewis and Tay, later to be discovered as Taylor Hasselhoff. How did you feel about them? At one point, Aaron says that on his team of 60 plus agents, the average that these people sell is 25 million a year. Yet Tay and Lewis, even combined, I don't think past three million a year. Tay is the child of David Hasselhoff, and she doesn't want to use her last name, or she's reluctant to in the beginning. She obviously comes around on it. And Lewis only wants to sell extremely expensive properties for a higher commission instead of the quick bucks, if you will, of two and three million dollar homes that would still net him a couple hundred thousand dollars. He chases those uber luxury properties because they're very attractive. But then Aaron even tells him point blank, it could take a couple years to sell one of these homes. So yeah, you'll get a big commission check, but you're also going to not have a check for years. I think Aaron is Lewis's weak spot in that Lewis is excited for the opportunity to potentially be like an Aaron. And that's why he hasn't taken a second job because it's bananas to me that he's made $120,000 in five years. That is not a lot of money, especially in LA, especially when he's trying to move out of his grandma's house. And then I think Lewis is Aaron's weak spot because Nisha, who came in at the same time as Lewis, is doing remarkably well. She's like a star student. And Lewis just isn't. He's tilting at windmills for these giant homes, for these fatter checks, and failing to pull in more homes. I think Aaron wanted him to do at least 20 sales. And he's just trying to do two or three huge sales instead. But Aaron keeps him around, I think, because he sees some of himself in Lewis. As a middle class person who can come up into the world of the wealthy. Aaron says that he grew up middle class and he frames it as though he grew up in poverty, but I think was too scared to explicitly say that because it just probably isn't true. And I think that Lewis comes from a slightly rougher financial background than Aaron. So maybe Aaron also wants to see himself in Lewis. Like he thinks of them both as scrappy people. Though Aaron talks about overcoming learning disabilities and speech impediments and growing up as an out man, which isn't easy. Yeah, he also says he hates authority, which is why he became his own boss, which is kind of a problematic approach to a career. 100%. That would terrify me if my boss were to say that. I'd be like, all right, so we won't be able to communicate our issues with you. So what you said is right. I just want to highlight one last thing about Tay or Taylor Hasselhoff. Oh, yes. The singer, philanthropist, former rich kid of Beverly Hills, another reality show she did. She does it all. Just so our listeners know, just the amazing scene where she realized she could use her last name and her connections when she realized Alexa knows who she is, aka can read her Wikipedia page. That was ridiculous. And she's like, whoa, if Alexa knows who I am, then I gotta use this. I also think that David Hasselhoff is exactly the level of celebrity that they needed. Someone who is more famous than David Hasselhoff would not do a CNBC show. But David Hasselhoff is still cashing checks, I'm sure. So he's rich enough that his presence is also relevant. Like he could, in theory, buy a $5 million property. We'll see what Taylor gets for him because her first big client is her father. Yep. 
Anyway, remember, always spring for the $200,000 bamboo to increase your profit margin. Don't skimp on the landscaping. It makes the $2 million difference in sales. It really does. Me too. What would you rate Listing Impossible on CNBC? Honestly, it was delightful. It was paced really well. It was a fun reality show. I bet it would be really fun to cook to. I could see myself putting my iPad in the corner of the kitchen and watching the show while I put together dinner. I think what you said is great while you're doing something else. Not that you're fully distracted, but if you're cooking, if you're folding laundry, maybe you have to like do some emails from work. You can have this going. It will be entertaining. You'll see Aaron go at it against the clients. You'll see Nisha shine and you'll see Lewis struggle to do what he is told to do by everyone around him. By every single living being in his presence. Awesome. If you want to find more reviews, head to our website at thepilotpodcast.com. And if you're interested in getting a long form version of our podcast where we really dive into a single pilot episode of a show, check out the Pilot Podcast Deep Dive where you can subscribe at join.thepilotpodcast.com. And thank you to our new Deep Dive supporters. We are so excited to record those episodes for you. You can also follow us on Twitter and on Instagram at the Pilot Pod. You can send thoughts, feelings, show suggestions, questions, weird dreams, and anything else to askthepilotpodcast at gmail.com. Thanks for listening. Bye. Bye.